welcome to episode 374 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. The sky comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're in the same room together. So I was just taking a sip. That is factually correct. It's true. We it's are. true. So we, uh, once a year, we have this annual, it's not a pilgrimage. What do we call it when you go home? Homecoming? I don't know. <laughs> sure. This annual trek back, Could to be a the, pilgrimage. back to the promised land. Uh, well, I suppose it's not really back to the promised land for me because I live here. but That's true. Back to the homestead. There we go. And uh, we are together for the midwinter no reason celebration that our family embarks on every year. Right. And we're a little bit late on this episode just because it's been a busy week and there's been some illness around the house. So it's been hard to find time, but we are behind the mic and we are excited to go. Yes. And I understand this whole episode is based on a listener question. Yes. Yes. The question, I mean, the, the question, uh, it wasn't so much a direct question as it was a sort of a suggestion for this topic to really go through the, the concept of Christ's impeccability is the technical term. So whether or not Christ, uh, in the incarnation had the possibility of sin. I don't want to say ability because I think that that sort of loads the question, but whether there was a possibility for the incarnate son of God to uh, to sin either in actuality or hypothetically, whether that's a possibility. Uh, and then a related question, we'll read a, a quote here in a little bit here, but a related question is how do we talk about and think about uh, the temptation of Christ in light of the way that we're going to answer that question? So this isn't a brand new topic for us. We went over this uh, quite a ways back, uh, back in the catalog, Deep Cut here in episode 107. And I would like to say when this came up, I found that episode link faster than PeteBot did. <laughs> so I'm not sure how that happened. It was, must have just been a quirk. Maybe he was down for upgrades or something like that. But uh, it's a ways back, and I think both of us have grown in our understanding of this, our articulation of this, so it'll be good to revisit this topic, I think, a little bit and to kind of go through it. We're mostly AI now, so Pete is going to have to keep up. It's true. Yep, yep, yep. That was the AI glitching right there. <laughs> so I'm going to read a quote from R.C. Sproul here. Um, and this, I don't have, this was a quote that was provided in the context of the question. So I don't have the... Um, I don't have the exact reference for it, but here is the quote. It says, uh, if it were possible for Christ, nope, that's not it. This is great podcasting here. There it is. Um, it seems wrong to think that Christ's divine nature made it impossible for his human nature to sin. If that were the case, the temptation, the tests, and his assuming of the responsibility of the first Adam would have all been charades. So Sproul's argument basically, and this is a common argument that you run into, uh, in favor of Christ's hypothetical ability or possibility of sin, Sproul's argument basically is that for temptation, for testing, for any sort of true responsibility to rest on Christ's shoulders for this task, there had to have been the possibility of sin. Otherwise, the the, the accounts that we see in the gospel— and I think particularly the temptation in the wilderness, but the accounts that we see in the gospels really throughout his whole life, his whole passive suffering, his whole uh, incarnate ministry, that that would have been somehow like play acting. Um, and there, I'll, I'll admit there's a certain amount of force to this question because I think we don't 
often carefully think about the nature of temptation and what what it actually is and how it actually functions. So we'll um, we'll get into that a little bit. What do you what do you think about that uh, quote there, Jesse? I so I think sometimes like it's a bad rap because obviously I don't think I think what Sproul is going after there is he's trying to emphasize what the author Hebrews mentions in having one who is a perfect high priest, like it's never without, without sin. So this idea of whether or not there was ability to sin, I think more was the temptation legitimate. Yeah. I think it's really more he's driving at there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that we have to um, remember really about anyone who's writing theology, speaking theology, whether it's R.C. Sproul, Jesse, me, whoever, is we all have blind spots. We all have areas that we are really good. um, And we all have areas that we're not as good. And most of us have areas that we're probably pretty bad. And this is actually something Sproul said is, is he's a hundred percent certain of his theology, but he's also a hundred percent certain that some of it's wrong. He just right. isn't sure which it is. And I think, you know, one of the things with RC Sproul that we have to also remember is he's writing in a particular context and he's popularizing theology. And in a certain sense, he's pushing back against a very particular kind of theology. Um, so we see this in, um, one area when he is asked whether the the hymn that talks about like the blood of God is legit and he talks about like, can God die and, or is Mary the mother of God? Like all these questions surround the same topic. And it's really about like, what's the nature and the, 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 the completeness of the incarnation. And in one sense on that level, he's pushing back against uh, a certain kind of patropashianism, which is the idea that, the, that God or the father specifically, or theopashism uh, that God suffers in the divine nature. And so he answers some of those questions in the negative saying, well, no, God, it's not proper to say God died right. um, because he wants to avoid the conclusion that somehow God suffered on the cross. In this particular instance, he's he's trying to preserve the, the distinction between the, na- the natures of Christ by not allowing them to collapse into each other. So he's, he, in some sense, he's kind of like pushing back against almost what we might call like the Lutheran problem where certain attributes of one nature, the divine nature sort of bleed over into the human nature. So in, in Lutheran, uh, sacramental theology, you know, the, the body of Christ can be present in more than one place at more than one time, um, or at the same time. So there's this bleeding over of the divine nature's attributes into the human nature and Sproul is pushing back against this. Now I think we'll, we'll get to it, but I think this is a, a problematic take on the question and it, it reveals something about some of the weaknesses in uh, R.C. Sproul's theology, particularly in the metaphysics of God, the metaphysics of the incarnation. He's not strong there. And, you know, there's lots of times where if you push, if he was pushed to really clarify and articulate what he was saying, he would articulate towards the, the sort of classic Chalcedonian understanding. But because he's writing and popularizing this theology, he's not often forced to, or he's not often pushing down that path as far as he probably should have in a lot of these cases. And I think this is a case where he just doesn't tease out the implications the same way. Um, And this is not, it's not accurate to say that there is a universally held standard reformed position, but I do think that there's a dominant position in the reformed world that, that trends towards Christ not having any sort of hypothetical um, possibility or ability to sin, regardless of which nature we're talking about. And we'll have to kind of parse out some of what that means. Yeah, the problem here, I think, is that like even the vaulted confessions, nobody threads this needle. We use language that we know we ought to use. Right. 
so that we can split the difference essentially so that we can put two things into one or assimilate two concepts that at least converge at some point when you get down to actual practical nuanced answers. So his answer to me is no better than the confessions, which will emphasize another part. Right. And many people will push back and say like, well, you're basically deconstructing it to such a degree that you're right. not emphasizing properly one other side of the spectrum. And right. you're like, no, 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 we listen. We just understand the mysteries there. So like, again, the Lutherans, our Lutherans and residents, if we yeah. call them that, we'll just say, we understand that we're just more comfortable. They would say we're more comfortable with the mystery than you right. all are. And I get that at some point. So I think it depends on what you're emphasizing in that quote there. And I'm trying to like frantically find it uh, in context. I think, as you said there, it is emphasizing something that isn't essential, the essential point of what that sentence means, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's part of the problem with pulling that out of context. But I think the force of it is still there. And of course, it does just underneath it belies this question of, okay, so could Christ have actually sinned? Then you have to get into all the ontological stuff right. if you so want, but maybe there's a simple answer, but the simple answer will just feel good, but won't be right. Does that yeah. make sense? No matter which side you're on. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think there's a certain, um, like I said, there's a certain kind of force and intuitiveness to what Sproul is saying and intuitiveness and like um, sort of prima facie on the face of it, making sense is not always uh, a bad thing in theology. A lot of times we actually get ourselves into trouble when we, um, we don't just accept what the scripture seems to be saying on the face of it. And I would actually venture to say we should more often than not, we should just accept what the scripture says on the face of it, unless we have a compelling reason to dig, dig deeper or to, you know, we're, we're pushed by some other clearer part of scripture, right? That's the, the, um, analogy of faith, right? We interpret the unclear passages by the clear ones. So unless we're pushed by some sort of force of scripture by a more clear passage to say, this is unclear and we need to interpret it differently, we shouldn't do so. And I think this is one of those ones where the clearest passages of scripture are not always obvious in this question, right? Sproul would probably point, and I think he is pointing to the temptation narratives and saying, well, these are obvious. These are obvious passages. Um, They're not they're not intended to be like deep theological treatises. They're just a straightforward retelling of what happened. And so he's drawing some conclusions about what needed to be the case in order for those events to roll out the way they do. But I think the challenge with this, the problem with this is that what the scripture teaches about Christ and the incarnation and the nature of temptation itself in other parts of the scripture actually push us away from understanding what's going on in the temptation as though Christ being tempted in the desert is exactly the same thing that would have happened if we were brought out to the desert, that the same thing is happening inside of Jesus as would have been happening inside of us. I think that's the fundamental misstep that Sproul makes among, among some ontological things that we, you know, metaphysical things we'll have to tease out a little bit, but that's the fundamental misstep he makes is he assumes, or he, he draws the conclusion that what's going on in internally in Christ is more or less the same thing that would be going on internally with us. And I think that's precisely the wrong way to look at what's going on in the, in the wilderness accounts. Right. Or third option. He's not writing for you or I. That's true. <laughs> and the point that he's making, right. we're getting lost in. He might say that just accept what I'm trying to say without getting into like all the heady details. So it's, you have to have it on both sides, yeah. but our tele, is this telegram? Is that where it came from? Yeah. The question. Yeah. It's full of very thinking people. So yeah. Well, and I think, I think, you know, I take your point and I get that, but I also think we have to be, this is one of the challenges of doing sort of like popular theology 
And I think like our podcast falls into that same category of like sort of popularizing theology. We're not a super tech. I mean, we can be technical, but we're not like, we're not reform forum. <laughs> the numbers right? is we're not, not popular theology. Right? We're not like, well, yeah, we're not like, we're not like bringing on PhDs from like Oxford onto our show, right? We're not, we're not reform forum. We're not, um, we're not that kind of podcast. We're, we're two guys who are variously educated in theology and we talk about it. So we're, we're popularizing theology in a certain sense. And I think the danger, and this is where I, I actually, this was not even in my mind. I jumped back on Facebook to check one thing and I got into a conversation with Todd Pruitt about the language of like God plus. Like the language of God plus in the incarnation that God, God, like the son added to himself yeah. something in the incarnation. And we talk sure. about that. I think we've probably used that language. Like it's not subtraction, sure. it's addition, sure. but even that can be a dangerous road to go down. And there, there's a balance, right? We don't want to get so bogged down in the weeds and the technicalities of it that we miss the big picture right. or that we um, exclude language that might be fruitfully deployed in the right context. But at the same time, we also don't want to just sort of write off language that we use. Be like, well, we're just trying to like explain it. Like it's, I, I get it's not technically correct, but you know, we're just trying to make it clear to people. Right. There's a sweet spot somewhere in there that I think shows like ours, blogs, podcasts, popular book writers, like that's the sweet spot that we're all trying to get to. Sure. So I wanted to talk about this because I think this is a good example of where we need to be careful with our language, but maybe not overly scrupulous. And I think that maybe is what you're kind of driving towards is we need to, we need to understand Sproul's trying to make a particular point. And it's not, although he does, I think he does in, this is from uh, Truths We Confess, I think is what I found in the chat. He does make the point in that book that Christ could have sinned. So like, it's not just trying to make the point that like the temptations were genuine. He's also arguing for the actual possibility of Christ sinning. And I think that that's a, I think that's a faulty, a faulty position to take for a lot of reasons. Yeah, sure. Again, I have to read, I haven't read the book. Yeah. I always hate to comment on stuff I haven't read. Sure. So to that end, I'm happy to debate it kind of like extemporaneously and outside the bounds of that quote. But yeah. And I don't want to, the I'm, point I'm is not to, he's yeah, driving the, that it's meaningful. Right. Now he may take that too far, but I would say it is, it must be meaningful. We'd all right. agree with that. Right. Yeah. And the point, the point isn't to like spend the whole episode talking about this quote, but to just use it as a launching pad to sure. like talk about the impeccability of Christ. Right. And so I think the predominant view in the, in the reformed world both now and I think historically, yeah. is that because of the way the hypostatic union works, the, what we believe the scriptures teach about how the natures come together and are united in a single person, right? They're not united directly to each other. That would actually be a sort of a form of Nestorianism, which is part of the challenge here, right. um, where the natures remain totally distinct from each other and they're kind of like stuck to each other. It's not a Venn diagram. It's just two circles that like touch each other at a single point. That model of the incarnation is problematic. And, and the historic understanding is that there's the second person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity is a full existent person. He's a full hypostasis and he takes into himself or he unites to himself, to his person. That's why it's the hypostatic union. He unites to his hypostasis, a non-personal human nature and supplies the personhood for that nature, making it a complete nature. And so when we look at it that way, the crux of the issue here isn't what one nature can do and the other one can't. And that's where that's where Sproul wrote it. He says, well, the divine nature can't make it so the human nature can't sin. And we would, I mean, we would 
understand that logic in a certain way because we would say like, well, yeah, like the human nature doesn't make it so the divine nature can perish and the divine nature doesn't make it so the human nature is omnipresent. But the the challenge with this is we're not talking about attributes, really. What we're talking about is what can the single person do or not do? What is within the realm of possible actions or possible um, acts for that single person? And so because the single person is and always has been the son of God, is God the son, we we can't say that God can sin. Like that's an incoherent sentence. Sure. So the, the pushback is, is there. People will say like, well, yeah, but now you're just collapsing the human nature into the divine nature. But that's not really what we're doing. What we're doing is we're respecting and preserving the idea that there is this single person. That's the, that's the incarnation. The incarnation is the single person. And because that single person is God, he's, he's not able to actualize in any real or hypothetical sense. He's not able to actualize sin. He can't have a desire to sin. If you can't have a desire to sin, you can't actualize sin. And that's where that's where I think the majority of the reform world sort of lands on this. Reform forum, funny that we were kind of like bashing on, well, not bashing on them, but we were kind of like jabbing at them a little earlier. Reform forum did an amazing episode on this. Uh, it's just look up impeccability on their website. And you'll come up. It was super, super good. It was the clearest technical articulation of this that I've ever heard. It was it actually like helped to reshape some of the way I've thought about it and sort of correct some issues I had. Sure. So I just think we need to we need to parse out that question of the incarnation when we get to this this kind of question. Well, what did they say? Let's they were do on what the, they said. Yeah, I mean, well, they, is that their answer? That you was just their, gave answer, their answer. Right. Yeah, I mean, more or less, they said, you know, you 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 in order to they weren't they weren't addressing <clears throat> Sproul or this this particular quote, but they were saying in order for in order for this the Christ to be able to sin, you have to treat each nature as though it's a distinct willing agent. Where the 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 human nature could will and act apart from the divine nature, and that's why that's why the conclusion is well, that's a Nestorianizing kind of position. It it isn't Nestorianism proper, but it tends towards Nestorianism because you have these two distinct willing agents that are kind of like stuck together, and so one willing agent can do something that the other willing agent couldn't, and that's fundamentally not the position of the Orthodox Christian Church, that you have two willing agents in the incarnation. You have two wills in the incarnation, but each of those wills is is willed or actualized by the single willing agent that is the son. Sure. So that that's the way they came down to it. I mean, they talked about it a lot more articulately than I just did. Um, but I, I want to like think about and talk about a little bit, like how do we understand the temptations then? I mean, I, I think when we talked about it before, you were on the same page with me on, sure, on yeah, that conclusion. I don't sure. yeah. think that your position has changed. No. So how do we, how do we talk about and reason through what it means now for someone who can't actualize sin, who can't actually be brought to a state of sinning either voluntarily or by some sort of external force. Cause right when we sin, it's not always just purely an act of volition. Our volition, our will is always involved, mm -hmm. but there are outside, um, outside influences and forces that are bringing, you know, bringing things in front of us. And I think you could even say causing us to sin, right? There's a certain level of like, uh, and we'll talk about the passage in James cause this plays into it, but I love chocolate cake. I just love chocolate cake. And mm -hmm. it, you know, I could be, I could promise 
I'm never going to eat chocolate cake again, but if you put chocolate cake in front of me, yeah. probably going to break that promise. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's because there's a principle of sin within me, mm-hmm. but there's also this external item that just, I deeply desire chocolate cake. Maybe isn't the best example. Cause I probably could withhold myself from that if I needed to, I but, uh, so how do we, how do we talk about and reason through what temptation might've looked like or what it did look like for Christ when he didn't have that, that same dynamic going on? Well, let's go to James then. I assume we're going to, you're, you sin when you're carried along yeah. by your lust. Is that where we're going? Yep. James 1. James 1. See the Bible. Do you have it in front of you? Yeah, <laughs> I trying, do. I'm trying to frantically pull it up. Yeah. I'll, I'll read um, starting in verse uh, 12. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, like, on the face of it, this seems to present the same, this this passage, just right on the face of it, seems to present the same exact um, objection that R.C. Sproul was launching, right? It, It straight out says God cannot be tempted with evil. But now we go to the the temptation narratives and Christ is clearly being tempted and he's clearly being tempted, maybe not with evil, but by evil. He's being tempted in a genuine sense. Right. So how do we, how do you think we parse that out? Like, what do we do with this? I'm still trying to pull up this passage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm far behind. I got stuck in Hebrews. I got stuck in Hebrews. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a good answer off the top of my head uh, to be honest with you. Yeah. So in this passage, you know, this is one of those ones where this comes up in like the discussions of same-sex attraction and whether it's sinful to desire something sinful. Like if if I desire it but I don't act on it as a sinful. And I think that the the answer in this passage and the the way that we need to read this out is this is not only like a sequence of events. That's how most people read this. It's um, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The The challenge with this passage, and I don't have the Greek in front of me and I don't have it memorized, but the challenge in this is that the tenses don't necessarily support this sort of like sequential movement from like step one, step two, step three. So for example, it says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So that, that second part of the sentence is qualifying what it means to be tempted, right? Temptation, as James is explaining it here, is being lured and enticed by your own desires. So there's this principle of sin within us. We have these evil desires within us that look out into the world and they sort of like experience the different things that are in front of us. And some of those things are good things. And some of those things are intrinsically sinful things. And temptation happens when our desires either grab onto one of those sinful things, those intrinsically sinful things, or when we grab onto one of those things that's not intrinsically sinful, but it's, uh, it's an inordinate desire or it's sinful for us at the time. So like, um, the classic example is like a man can see a beautiful woman and can desire to date her and all that comes with that desire to marry her and all that comes with that. There's nothing intrinsically sinful about desiring marriage with a woman and everything that comes along with that. We're going to keep that PG 13 because sometimes there's kids listening, right? 
Now, it becomes sinful if I desire that out of order, if I desire to have marital relations with that person prior to marriage, right? That, that becomes lust. If I desire to have someone else's wife, either sexually or as my wife, like just to, to marry her, then that's coveting. So that, that not necessarily sinful thing becomes sinful when our sinful desires grasp onto it. And that's what James is talking about here. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, not by some external thing, but by his own desire. And then we go into the next question, the next passage of the section here, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. So this is where we start to read it as like a sequence. And that's not really necessarily what the Greek supports. It's more like then desire when it has already conceived, when in the process of conceiving or as it has been conceived gives birth to sin. And when sin, as it has fully grown up, brings forth death. It's not like you conceive and then you give birth and then you, you know, and then you grow up and then you give death. That's the way it happens in the real world. So he's using that analogy. But the way that this all plays out is not necessarily that sequential kind of event. Right. I mean, it also strikes me that, you know, James, of course, is writing to a group of people who are decidedly people. So this is right. probably prescriptive for right. people. Right. I might argue that it might not be entirely prescriptive. In other words, it's certainly prescriptive to extent, but it's, it could be just descriptive of how in the context of what he's giving them a specific warning, because at the end of that passage, he says, you know, then don't be deceived. Right. That this is the way he sees it playing out in their life. But one could argue that, you know, there is real temptation that might be outside the scope of this, so to speak. Does that make sense? Like the yeah. first domino to fall may in fact be the kind of temptation we're talking about with Christ. If in fact you ever actually have the experience to go before the devil himself, which is very unlikely, right? Yeah. So we're just saying, but that this might, and reasonably we can say doesn't apply to Christ, like in the same way, at least. Right. And I think that's the point you're kind of making, right? Yeah. Is, is that, is like, th this is people, this is for people. Right, right. This, this is written to, exactly. Like this is written to sinners, yeah. right? And Christ is not a sinner. And like, right. I didn't start there because that's like begging the question. That's like starting with our conclusion. But this passage depends on, for this this whole sequence to work, you have to have evil desires to start with. You have to have desires that are not ordered properly to start with. So to take this passage and then apply it to Christ, you either have to affirm that Christ had disordered desires, which at which point we're already all lost because now Christ is a sinner. Right. Right. Or you have to say like, this is not necessarily talking about the same thing. And I think that's that's where we come to the conclusion, right? Or the conclusion of this part of the question is Christ's experience of temptation is different, fundamentally different than our experience of temptation. Right. There's a there's a similarity or a, a point of contact in that there's some external thing right. that is put before us. Um, the point of dissimilarity, though, is that for us, we have this internal principle that reaches out towards a good thing and takes grasp of it in a bad way. There's no, there's no principle of desire or disorderedness or sin in Christ that ever reaches out to take a good thing wrongly. And that's where like the temptations, you know, it kind of, there's always this question of like, did the, did the devil have the power to even offer these things or, or were they even necessarily bad things? Well, like if you're in the desert and you're hungry and you need food, it's not wrong to want food. It's not wrong if you have food to eat food. Um, you know, Christ may have been under some sort of vow or something like that to be fasting. Um, the text doesn't specifically say that, but he may have been. So there's context that would have been needed there. But the idea that he would sort of like shortcut his mission, he would shortcut. I mean, this is to call on our Lutheran brothers and sisters here. Like this is like the theology of glory. 
right? The temptation there was to shortcut over the passion, to shortcut over the suffering of life and the suffering of death on the cross and the ignominy of the grave, all of that to just jump past that. That was the temptation that the devil was putting in front of him. And, you know, I don't have it in front of me. There's a quote by Shed that just like, uh, by um, G.T. Shed that just exemplifies how we reconcile this. Is he basically says like an indefeatable army can still be attacked. Just because the army can never be attacked doesn't mean, or can never be defeated, doesn't mean that some uh, some ignorant or silly person could could try, right? That doesn't mean that like that's a charade. There's still real stakes. There's still a real battle that goes on. Right. The the indefeatable army just wins every time. It, that doesn't it mean it confuses what an army is. Right. Exactly. Army is like, not a body that is impervious to attack. Yeah, but I mean, like, the idea is... Because this is confusing temptation with, well, you must be able to sin to be tempted. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the the idea is, like, just because Christ couldn't be defeated doesn't mean he couldn't be assailed. Right. Right. So the idea of this indefeatable army that Shed uses is to say, like, if you have an army that's so powerful that no one can overcome it, it doesn't mean no one can try. And it doesn't mean that if someone tries that it's not a real struggle and a real battle. It just means that... The battle is the outcome of the battle is decided, but there still has to be the battle if someone attacks. And that's where we that's where like this doesn't become a charade is. The other thing we want to be careful not to say is that like Christ somehow had a different kind of human nature than ours. And this is what I think what Sproul is trying to get at. Right. Agreed. Right. There was no like physical constraints that made it so like if Christ tried to murder somebody that his arm would stop working right. or like if he tried to lie that like his tongue would fall out. There's nothing like that. So when he says like, well, it's possible his human nature could do those things. Yes. Like the nature itself had the capacities to take those particular actions, but the desire and the will to do those things could never have obtained, could never have existed in Christ. And so these external temptations and the external, um, here's, here's the other way that I sometimes ask the question when people bring this up is could Christ have failed at his mission? And universally, I've never had somebody, um, apart from, Actually, it was a Roman Catholic who said yes. But apart from that one Roman Catholic I talked to, um, I've never had anybody say yes. Well, if Christ couldn't fail in his mission, then you've already answered the question that he couldn't sin because to sin would have been to fail. But that also doesn't mean, and this is the other part of that question, is like his responsibilities of the second Adam, they don't mean that he doesn't actually have to accomplish the task. Just because he is going to accomplish the task and he can't not accomplish the task doesn't mean that somehow he gets to skip straight to the end. That was the temptation the devil was giving him, right? Skip to the end. Skip straight to the end of the story and jump over all this stuff. And he said, I can't do that because that's not my father's will. It's not my will. Right. Right. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm actually surprised that people don't go to other passages on this. Like, for example, we always go to the temptation of the wilderness, the spirit driving Jesus out. I often think about this in light of the prayer that happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. Because interestingly, Jesus asked his disciples specifically pray that you don't fall in the temptation. Then he goes and asks the Father, if it's your will, make, would you have this cup pass for me? Uh, so one might ask, like, what does that mean? Is there really an alternative here? There is no alternative, right? right? Yeah, he does ask this in such a way. And I think this is where we get into that mystery where we have to hold in our mind these two things somehow in contrariety that Jesus is assuming all of what it means to be human nature so that the temptation isn't meaningful without compromising, of course, the impeccability or the immutability. To me, that's a clear line to draw theologically. 
but it all has to take place in a way that he is repairing, restoring, and he's becoming or is the the true last Adam, such that to your point, there is no way in which you know somebody in the court of law could could strike an argument and objection and say, well, you weren't truly human, right? That that's the problem. And so, like again, nobody will thread that needle particularly well right. because it's just really difficult for us to yeah. like articulate with that. You always fall on one side or the other. It's really yeah. difficult. Well, yeah, and, and I think you know the garden is another good example that you're right doesn't come up very often in this question. And the the you know a lot of times people um, what people think the challenging part of the garden of Gethsemane is is there seems to be like a certain level of uncertainty. Like Christ maybe really thinks there's another possibility. Right. Yeah. And and you know we we would um, we would affirm and we would hold with the historic church that. Christ, um, Christ grew and developed in his knowledge according to his humanity. Right. Right. That's true. And, and we don't know exactly when he reached the, the finality of his knowledge, like his self-knowledge. Um, but it probably was before the garden. Right. So like right. the idea that he was sitting in the garden and he wasn't really sure whether the cross right. was the only way that that's not, it's not really like a feasible answer, but I think sometimes thinks that's like the, the challenge of the garden of Gethsemane. The real challenge is understanding how how we can think about Christ as a human desiring not to die, but knowing that it's the Father's will and how that isn't somehow a contradiction in wills. Um, and that, you're right. I think this is one of those questions that a lot of times we just need to like put our hand over our mouth and say, we don't know how, but we know that. We don't know how right, that works. We right. know that it does. Um, you can you can get to a certain point of uh, of parsing this out to say Christ desired life. That's a good thing. Like it's, mm. it's good for a human being to desire not to die, especially not like a, a terrible suffering death. Right. But nevertheless, he submitted himself and his desires to, to God's will. We also should never go into that with the idea that like Christ is really, really like has a different will than the father in this. Right. It's not as though he was like, I really don't want to go to the cross. And I know that my father really wants me to go to the cross. So let's, let's negotiate this. That's not what that passage is doing. Um, But I think you're right. Like that does introduce the same kind of question is like, what is, what is actually going on there? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the question is that there is this real task of, there's this real task of submitting to the father's will. Like it's not um, because we know the end of the story. I think we sometimes think that like all of these events happen in like a moment in time. It's like a snapshot of all of the things that happen and they all happen at the same time. But Christ, according to humanity, like lived these things out in time sequentially, the same way, same way we live out anything sequentially. And so the, the, the possibility the the abstract possibility of not submitting to the father's will still had to be overcome by Christ. Right. Even though it was a foregone conclusion that he would overcome it, he still had to go through that process. In some ways, like our sanctification is not all that different, mm-hmm. right? I think sometimes we think that God could sanctify us instantly. And I guess he, he could just like blast our sin out of us instantaneously. But I think it's more likely that there's some necessity to the way God intends sanctification to work that takes time. It's not it's not the case that he has ordained it to be an instantaneous process. And that's probably not just like God flipped some cosmic coin. I was like, oh, I'm going to make him wait for it. There's some necessity of how he intends to accomplish this that makes it so it has to unfold in time. It has to have a terminus in time at our death 
where that's completed. Mm -hmm. And I think when we think about all of the different things that Christ does as the second Adam, as the incarnate Christ, all of those things have that same thing. Like right. Christ had to be conceived in the, the womb of the Virgin Mary. He started his life as his human life as two cells, right? The same way we all do like right. two cells. I don't want to get into all the mechanics of how that may have worked because we have no idea, right. but he started his life the same way we all did as a zygote, as a blastocyst or whatever the smallest you know phase of life is. And there's a developmental process, right? Christ didn't just like, get conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and then teleport out as like a fully grown adult male. That just isn't what happened. And that's because that's not how human life works. Right. And I think got it. like this same kind of thing is taking place here where temptation has to unfold in time. It's not like there's an option and it instantly is overcome. That wouldn't be temptation. Right. The, the wrestling and the struggling and the fighting and the being assailed by it. That's, I think that's temptation. And I think it was, I want to say it was Alistair Begg that I heard make the point. You're you're a bigger Alistair Begg fan than I am, I think. <laughs> um, I think I'm sure he wasn't the first person to make it, but Christ actually has experienced temptation to the fullness in a way that none of us ever will, because we will at some point give in. Right. And so Christ actually brings temptation to that final point. He experiences all of it. Mm-hmm. All of it to the dregs. Just right. like he experienced yep. God's wrath to the dregs, because there's never there wasn't a limit to God's wrath being poured out on him. There's no limit to how much temptation Christ could endure. And so there was no limit other than what temptation is capable of to what he did endure. And in some ways, I think the the argument here that is being representative of many people, but Sproul's argument actually, I think undercuts that a little bit because it's like, well, there was some point that Christ could have given in and maybe even would have given in, and so he didn't experience the fullness of temptation. I mean, I'm extrapolating that, but I've heard Maybe people, so. right. I've heard people make that argument. Um, I don't think Sproul is making that argument, but that camp has made that argument. We're like, well, yeah, he, he just, he didn't give in. Well, why not? Is it because the, the devil stopped tempting him? Like he didn't bring it to the, he didn't bring his full power. Like that's, that's an open <laughs> question for this that I don't think that that position can really account for. Right. That's true. I agree. You, you took all the points from me. That's where I was going. And, and, and I agree. The question is, is a really good one. I appreciate somebody bringing it to our attention again. I think the root of the question is how, if I could reframe it for one, in a way that makes more sense to me is how was the temptation meaningful for Christ? Yeah. And that's, what's really difficult to answer. And that's why I don't have a good answer for that. We can, we can speculate. And I think your speculation is as good as any, I would maybe speculate to say that there was always a temptation for Christ. And it's the same one that happens in the cradle and it is passive and and active obedience. It's the one that happens in the garden. It's the one that happens in the the desert, the wilderness as well. It probably is wrapped around submission. I would say like that probably gets hegemony in terms of it, but we not knowing the mind of Christ in this way, even as the Holy spirit that let him out there, we just know that it was meaningful. And if for it to be meaningful, did not require there to be the birth of sin in that process. So James is writing to people and it's, we're going to relate to it in that way. So we kind of wrap up, like, you know, try to wrap up whether or not the temptation could be real because there wasn't that proclivity, like you're saying, the first principle or the, the fallen nature is kind of, to me, irrelevant to that question. It could be a red herring. Right. It's just that the scriptures tell us that Jesus was tempted. Like you said, you're recording scripture about he is tempted to the fullest extent, whatever that means. Right. 
What does yeah. that mean? Right, exactly. We just we just trust it on the face, as you yeah. said earlier on. So he was tempted, but he's without sin. So now we have a new category that is like distinctly not us, yeah, not to whom James is writing. So it makes it fun, honestly, because what a savior who has gone and experienced his fullest extent, and we can't even begin to understand it, but we may stand in the repercussions of it, which is to say that that we'll be like him, yeah. And it, it won't be because in other words, like we won't be tempted in heaven, not merely because there is the absence of evil, not merely because right. we no longer have that nature, but because here's Christ who just like, even if that stuff doesn't exist, this makes yeah. sense. He still defeated it. Yeah. I feel like you're stealing my points now. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's okay. I've already stolen enough of yours. So I, I think you're, you know, you're, you're pointing us towards uh, Hebrews four, right? Yeah. Chapter four, uh, chapter four, verse 14 and following your chapter 14. Um, and this is, this is, again, one of those passages that's like often brought to bear on the other side of this conversation, mm-hmm. trying to say like, well, Christ obviously could have sinned. Right, right. It says here, starting in verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Right. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this is another, you know, I, I want to say with full force of everything I have, like you don't need to understand Greek to read the Bible, but this is one of those passages where I'm having a little bit of Greek uh, knowledge is helpful. And the reason for that is again, like we read this as he was tempted uh, in every respect has been tempted as we are, but he didn't sin. That's how we usually read that. Like he was tempted, but he managed not to sin. The Greek actually is more like he was tempted as we are without sin. Right. He was tempted as we are. The context for that whole process is without sin. So as I read this, and I think there's a good, a good, you know, a good foundation for it. It's not saying that Christ was tempted and just managed not to sin. He just succeeded in not sinning. It's actually saying he was tempted in such a way without a sin principle. He didn't have this principle of sin. And so this is where like, we have to be careful. We have to parse this out carefully because the point of this is to say, we have a high priest who is like us. He can sympathize with our weakness, but part of the reason he can sympathize with our weakness is that he doesn't necessarily share that exact same weakness in the same way, Mm -hmm. right? He can sympathize with our weakness and he was tempted as we are, because he didn't have this sin principle. Right. So he could be tempted the way we are. And then this is the this is the payout. Let us then, let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is exactly the point that you just made. Right. Is that the reason that we in in now, like right here and now in our current life in this age, the reason we can at times have success in our battle against sin. There are times where you're faced with a choice to sin or not to sin, and you can choose not to sin. Right. Maybe not entirely, maybe not purely, because our we're always a mixed bag, but you can choose not to sin. And in the future state, we will we will not ever choose to sin. There will be no mixed principle. Right. The reason we can do that is because Christ was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted as we are without having a sin principle for sin to grab onto. Does that, right. does that make yeah. sense? Yep. Yep. That's it. That's I'm totally with you on that. I think that's the rallying cry at the end of all this is that though we don't understand it completely, 
we don't have to try to superimpose like those human categories that James is talking about entirely on Christ to somehow make sure the temptation was meaningful. Right. I understand other explanations that are trying to drive at those two things. So as to not again, mitigate or attenuate either one of those two things so that we don't lose them. Yeah. But of course, like the minute you even slightly tilt toward ex- expressing, because maybe you're in an argument with somebody or maybe you're having a conversation, maybe you're self-wrestling right. with it is the minute somebody else will pick it up and be like, see, this is all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and in a way, everybody's all wrong. Right. So, but the bottom line, is we can trust that this is right. Yeah. What the Bible describes is right. And so it's, I'm with you. It's a super fun conversation. I'm sure I said it better in the episode in the hundreds. <laughs> so I'll just point back to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the, the takeaway from this episode for me is that with these kinds of sticky questions, the closer we can stick to the language that the scripture uses without, without like our fingers crossed behind our backs, Yeah. yeah. the closer we can stick to it, and only, only move away from the plain, what seems to be the plain sense of it when we're forced to by something right. more compelling in scripture, we're, we're on much safer ground there. Whether that's baptism now saves from, you know, second Peter, or whether it's these passages that um, are sometimes tricky to understand, but s- sort of also very basic, uh, you know, they're, they're very straightforward. Right. The closer we can stick to that language. And that's why when you read something like the Nicene Creed or the Westminster Confession, when you really fully um, immerse yourself in it, you see how just like full of scripture those confessions are, those creeds are. Like the languages of those creeds and confession is not, it's not just repeating the phrases of scripture, but it's it's using the, the phrases and the senses of scripture to articulate the truth mm-hmm. in a way that like we don't often do because we are sometimes trying to go to the next level. We're trying to go to the next step of the, of the question. Right. And we haven't necessarily spent the time at that surface level, understanding that we need to, to build that foundation. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. If you want a fun exercise, so if at any point in time to provide some encouragement to people, if they don't either speak or read ancient Greek there, if you ever, I would say like a passage like this, that's tricky. One, if you have a Locust Bible software, it's true. There's a lot of great resources you can use there, but even if you don't have that, anything that will get you a couple of translations together, for instance, when I find passages like this where you know, you have this sense as you read it that, okay, the words are mattering here, some tricky language. Right. It might be worth looking at it. What is that? Do you have the NAV in front of you by any chance? Look at the NAV. I'm wearing in Hebrews uh, 4.15. That's the one I want to look at real quick. I but can. you pull that up. While you're pulling that up, here's the NASB, which is going to be a little bit more literal. So it reads, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, comma, yet without sin. Right. And that's more to your point. It doesn't try to abstract and say like, it just so happened he did it right. perfectly. This is emphasizing comments, a full stop there essentially, or at least a partial pause to say he's all these things, but he is without the sin. Right. What is the, is the NAV less clear than that? I'm just curious. I um, yeah, I think um, the NIV is usually a little bit less clear just because of the way that it does translation. Yep. You, you have to sort of that like dynamic. dance around a little bit. Yep. Yeah. But it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but... We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And then it's like a long hyphen yet was without sin. Mm, So like it's so that phrasing is still putting it into sort of like this temporal frame. Yeah, The was the was like, like he was without sin. Like in all he he did, right. What he did was not sin. Exactly. Where the other translations, I think the ESV is trying to straddle it a little bit, but it does the same thing with a comma. Yeah. It's not talking about like the events of Christ's life. It's talking about the status of Christ, the nature, the, the actual attributes of Christ, the Holy one 
was without the principle of, I mean, I'm adding yeah. a lot of extra words there, but <laughs> was without sin, with without capital S sin. There was right. no sin principle in him. Right. And I think, you know, I think maybe to just to round us out, because I can hear dishes being clattered around downstairs. I'm sure that people are getting ready for dinner. Um, to sort of round it out, like, this is the whole point of the conversation is that we have to, we have to ground these questions in who Christ is, not just like what he did. And that, that I think when you're talking about Christology, um, I haven't listened to it yet, but Josh Summer just did a, a piece on um, part of exegesis on you know, uh, Baptist broadcast that I'm sure is very good. Josh is very good on this, but we can get bogged down in all the technicalities and all of the, you right. know, the patristic language and stuff. But at the end of the day, we have to think about who Christ is. What is the fundamental the nature of who Christ is? And Christ is both in the incarnate state as well as in, in his divine personhood. He is the Holy One of Israel. And so for this question to say the Holy One of Israel could sin, uh, I mean, I've sometimes said it, and this is maybe a little more forceful than I want it to be, but I've sometimes said it like, that's sort of like impious blasphemy. It's a, it's a, it's a unintentional and usually a well-intentioned um, attempt to preserve an aspect of who Christ is, but it it ends up actually like defaming who God is when we say that somehow God in the incarnation could have sinned. And I think that's where I want to kind of like land it is like we have right. to really ground everything we're reading in the scripture and who Christ is and what Christ is, not necessarily just what He does. Right, and the temptation was real. It's true. We agree. It was, and that's super awesome. Yep. Right. Yep. I, I love that. It's been a great 2023. And I want to thank again, everybody who's like joined us in the journey of listening, conversing through our telegram group chat. And you can go to t.me backslash reform brotherhood. If you want to sneak in there or just be kind of like a uh, listener, you, you could be a wallflower there. You can actually just perceive what's going on if you want. And then join in. And those who have sent us emails or suggested topics like this, I, I love that so much. And as well, those who have said, you know what, I've fulfilled all of my financial obligations and giving to my local church. And I know that this little podcaster from Brotherhood has some of those incidental needs. I want to make sure there are no paywalls. There are no purple mattress ads. Though like at this point, we might as well do one because we That's always, true. I always use that as an example of the thing that you'll never hear. Right. I mean, you're never going to hear an actual ad from, it's true. from purple. It's true. Um, but if like somebody did, I think what we do is we just turn it into it. We'd over spiritualize it if there is such a thing. And then they'd be like, we can't advertise it yeah. ever again. I don't know. We, have, we should you know do that. I mean? We should do That's that some, sometimes. Yes. 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 You know what I mean? It, it would be like Visa, everywhere you want to be. You know who's everywhere? <laughs> Visa. When you try to put it on your own credit, it's not good. <laughs> Only God's we, crap. Obviously, we got to yeah. workshop this. We do. We got to. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll workshop that. Um, so the fact that this thing just drops into your podcast catcher and, and sounds at least decent and arrives mostly on time is because others have given. I'm so thankful. And I, I want to give a special shout out to Sister Christine, who joined in giving through Patreon.com. So thankful. I mean, really, my heart is filled with gratitude for those who say, I want to give just a little bit because all that accumulated up together make sure that the costs are covered and everything still goes out into the world for others to enjoy. So thank you for, to everyone, a special word of thanks for those who continue to give so faithfully to make sure that so many others can enjoy. I mean, that's yeah. really sharing the love. So thank you, sister Christine. Yeah. And if you're looking for a different way to support the show and maybe get something as well, I know that we are, we're past the Christmas holiday, but it's always a good time to give a gift. 
we uh, we got some new merch on the website. New merch. Uh, some of it is brand new, and some of it is newly available. So we we gave away these these really sweet enamel camp mugs a few years ago to our oh, Patreon yeah. supporters. Those are great. And I've had uh, because it was actually on the website selling for a million dollars because we didn't want people to buy it. But <laughs> that's right. There was no I good way for us to that. deliver. We just we took a shortcut. I've had people ask how they can actually get that. And so we've actually made it available on the website. So if you go to store.reformbrotherhood.com, you can find the uh, enamel camping mug, which is sweet. Um, we also just put on uh, some hooded sweatshirts. You can get those in black, white, or gray. Um, I have not seen the samples yet. So if you order one and it looks like trash, please don't just uh, accept that. Please let me know. Um, and I will make sure that we get it corrected and sent out to you. Uh, and then, of course, you've got all of our classics, T-shirts. You know, we got mugs, we got pint glasses. You can buy some stickers if you want. Um, we don't we don't jack the prices up high on those. We we uh, put enough of an overhead on there to cover the costs and a little bit extra to help fund the show. So if you are just looking for a gift and you got a little bit of extra and you want to help support the show, that's a good way to do it. Or you can go to patreon.com slash reformbrotherhood, as Jesse mentioned, uh, if you're looking to do something on a more recurring basis. Yeah. Someday we'll put out the million dollar mug again. I was always hopeful that like somebody, <laughs> some great generous person would be like, I want this mug. I, I want like, you. And we would just get the email that would be yeah. like, you just received a million dollars. I don't, I don't think I could keep it. I think I'd have to send it back. I feel like I'd be. Well, no, in, in my mind, we've already, this person would have already like self vetted and been like, no, I, this is, I want to do this. And I, but I do want the mug. Like it was all contingent on like, I just want that just for the sake of the experience. You know, like there are people that are, you know, give money sure. and they'll for like the strangest ways they'll like, you know, gift that. Yeah. I feel like this would be the strangest way. It's true. Cause you'd reach out and be like, did you mean to do this? You're literally going to get charged. Also, I don't know how you'd get charged like that by itself would certainly vet this person. Cause you're talking like MX black card right there. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it'd be like, <laughs> we don't have that many ways to pay. So it's yeah. going to be like PayPal or like, <laughs> Amex. No, you can use a credit card on our on our store. Well, I mean, you'd have to, of course, you'd have to have a limit. And there's not many cards that have those kinds of limits, even if you're that kind of high roller. Yeah. How would how, could you imagine PayPaling someone a million dollars? Anyway, this is derailed. I love it. Derailed. You can also still buy fitted polyester face masks. Uh, I don't know that anyone actually bought one of those except me, but you can get those. If I you have want. one somewhere. I think you have one. I too, have one yeah. as well. Listen, if you're sick, people, it's true. Consider it. It's true. You got a cough? I mean, these days still, right? If you walk into a medical facility and yeah. you got the cough, they're like, can you please put it on that? Yeah. I feel like that only happened, this is another topic, that only happened at post-pandemic, right? We're, I think a lot of places are more forthright in saying like, if yeah. you have something going on. Yeah, I don't ever remember, I don't ever remember our medical center making patients wear masks yeah, when they were ill. Yeah. Um, employees, if you were sick, you were required to wear a mask, but I don't ever remember um, patients. And now, now if you like, have a sniffle. Like you come in, you got yes. allergies or like put on two masks. <laughs> so Bag it's it always, up. it's always a little bit weird still seeing someone with a mask on, like out in public Do you mm. feel that way. Like it's a little bit, strange? a little bit. It's everybody I think has a little bit of PTSD, but again, we're used to seeing that in more, and I'm not trying to be pejorative, like more Asian cultures right. where there's a different sense of community and right. responsiveness and accountability. So if we're getting that way, that's all the better, right? That's cool. I, I kind of want to see it. Like, well, I don't want to see if somebody's actually sick. You know what I'm saying? Like, but when you see that person, you want to be like, I see you. Yeah. I respect that. It's true. Thank you. There's obviously a reason for that. Maybe actually you're just worried about me, but either way, like yeah. you're worried that I'm going to make you sick, but either way you're doing something about it in the world. So there we go. A little bit of everything as we wrap up. Yes. The I, year. I was going to say an a moosh boosh, but I don't think that's right. It's we're on like the back end. So yeah, 
It's more like a cheese plate or like a dessert. Yes, platter. exactly. Go for a dessert platter. Yeah. Next week. Yes. Two thousand twenty-four amuse bouche. <laughs> well, Jesse, into your ear holes. Now that that's been the most scatterbrained random ending of any show ever, until two thousand twenty-four. That's factually correct. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Sister, I would help you.